Hi, thank you for turning into Building Digital Product Podcast. Join us in exploring the latest digital innovations in the world of tech industry, where we speak about the technologies that can boost your business here and now. And today we have the pleasure of welcoming Alicia Navarro, the founder and CEO of Skimlinks and Flow, and passionate and successful entrepreneur and advocate for diversity and inclusion in tech industry. Welcome, Alicia. Today we are going to speak a little bit about your experience and knowledge in hiring and cooperation and about your products, Skimlinks and Flown, about their ideation and my favorite part about women in tech. I would like to start asking some questions about uh, the way you as CEO and founder um, is searching for the appropriate team for the project. I want to pay attention to some key principles when it comes to hiring uh, project teams. So what are the essential qualities uh, you look for in potential team members? I think that before you start hiring of any sort, you need to be clear on what your cultural values are. I'm a massive believer in, uh, you know, a really clearly defined set of cultural values. And only once you have those understood, can you then begin bringing people on. So, and it, it's really interesting because people think I still be the same, but I've now had two different companies that have had very, very different cultural values. They're still great places to work. Everyone's very nice, but they're not cultural values. Cultural values around how you approach problem solving, how you approach rewarding or incentivizing people. What kind of uh, behaviors do you want people to be doing when no one's looking? So first work out what kind of culture, and that will be a product of the kind of um, environment you're working in. Are you a remote team or an in-person team? Um, how do you want decision-making to be done? Uh, and then you can begin uh, looking at the right kinds of people to join your team. Uh, and you design interview questions that either directly or indirectly seek to give you clarity as to whether they're a good cultural fit. I know that you once joined forces with the Romanian developers quite a distance from Australia. Uh, so here at LinkUp Studio, we similarly work with clients all across the world in the USA, um, Europe and the Middle East. So uh, could you share your perspective on working with the remote team? Yeah, so, um, I mean, there's remote team and there's a remote sort of external team. At the moment, now with my current company, Flown, uh, we are a remote team, but we are all um, employees. So there's remote team and then there's, I guess, an outsourced um, sort of uh, engineering team that you work with uh, for various reasons. So with my first links, yes, I, uh, I began with a Romanian uh, engineering team uh, and the time... I think the, the benefits of those kinds of um, arrangements is that uh, they are very flexible, uh, very experienced at building um, sort of proof of concepts or early MVPs. So we're able to operate at both a speed and price that enables you to work out if you have a business, you know? And I think that for first time founders or, uh, or or not even first time, but for many people who would just want to get something up and running, 
without the commitment or risk that hiring someone full-time gives you, then uh, an offshore team can be uh, a fantastic way to get started. Mm -hmm. We then um, at Skim, um, and you know, I was there for 11 years and um, at the end we also worked with a offshore uh, and for very different reasons. We were a big company, we were profitable, but at that stage we needed um, to quickly onboard uh, a team that we knew could work well together that were able to solve a very specific uh, problem or take responsibility for a very specific part of our business. And so in both of those cases, it worked. Um, I think that it probably should not. Like the only thing you have for the duration of your company, but again, it depends on the kind of company that you are. If you're a venture-backed company with investors, very often they're looking for you to have um, employed teams of developers and that becomes an important criteria for getting external investors. If instead you're not looking at a VC-backed company and instead you're looking to you know, run a business, whether it be a lifestyle business or spin up a product or run you know, uh, a business that you have put the money in for yourself, an offshore team is a flexible, often more cost-effective way uh, to get up and running um, and to, to run things over time easier than it would be with uh, an employed team. So to recap, is if I understood correctly, if uh, for the beginning, um, it's okay to start working with remote teams, but then um, to have the in-house team uh, to work in person, it would be, be better and more productive, right? Yes, because you're then able to craft a culture that is necessary for getting through the hard phase. I think that, um, you know, that, and again, it really depends on the kind of company you are. I can sit within my own experience, which is venture-backed companies. And so generally, a venture-backed tech company will need to have its own team. Mm-hmm. But there is a place for offshore teams at the beginning uh, when you're getting started. And as a supplementary um, addition to the team when you need to scale or you need certain projects done uh, as a one-off or short-term basis. Just recently, uh, we also released a video on assembling the right team uh, for a startup project. And we'd love to hear um, about um, where did you look when building uh, your team? I mean, could you share some specific platforms or communities where you found talent? Yeah, where did we find talent? Good question. So, um, time round, uh, it's people, largely it's people I had worked with before. Um, after you've been in the industry for a while, you, you get the opportunity to work with lots of different people. And, you know, uh, a, you know, a lot of people that I work with now are people I knew or friends of people I know. But then beyond that, I, you know, I, I advertise through, often through networks. I, I, I like to hire people that come through referrals, generally because there's extra element of trust that comes with that. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we advertise and I guess the platforms that we have used to quite a lot of success has been uh, LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Again, because LinkedIn tells you sort of people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think a reasonably good um, job board. And then we've also used more um, specific startup-related job boards, um, mm-hmm. which I forgot the names of now, but there's a, a couple of like, specific startup-related job boards that have been very uh, useful for 
engineering and non-engineering talent. Great, very insightful. Thank you so much. Yeah, right now, um, I have also noticed that some of the biggest and most profitable projects that come to us um, are from referrals. And uh, LinkedIn is still a good uh, network for us also to find uh, clients and customers. Uh, moving forward, let's uh, talk a little bit about Skimlinks, your first um, uh, and very, I would say, very good and big company that is um, quite successful. So in Black once you mentioned that in 2007, you were working and pitching a social um, shopping platform and you were pitching almost every day, but it um, didn't get any funding. And then you made a big decision to give up and um, switch to content monetization platform. And this became actually Skimlinks. So um, your success came just before the big financial crisis and recession in 2008. And as you said, you were saved from the joys of the death. My question is, when do you think one should stop trusting their gut feeling and stop pushing a project if it's not working out? I could give you an answer, but there's no what to this. It's an art. It's, um, it's an art people get even if they're good at. And I think I often say that one of the being a founder is you have to be both. The person has the most belief in what you are doing and will be the one that's there to the end. But also you have to be the first to realize when it's time to stop or change. And to be both of those things is such a contradiction. Um, and there's no way do it. I think that all you can do is approach these situations with humility and try not your own personal identity with the identity of your startup. And that can be very hard because as first time founders, they are their startup. They are, you know, I and it uh -huh. become the same pronoun. Uh -huh. um, so it can be very difficult to accept defeat because that means you failed. And uh, the only thing I can counsel other founders with is they, I can, it's necessary to separate out who you are with who or uh, co what your company is. And you are not a fail, like you are a success really, if you're able to recognize mm -hmm. that you need to change your strategy or that it might not be working, but it's hard. Mm -hmm. And it can be hard to separate your identity from the identity of your startup. Uh, and that can be very damaging because you feel that the failure of your startup is a, is the same as a failure of yourself. And that's very normal. That's mm -hmm. a very normal feeling, but not a, it's not a healthy one and one that, um, you know, you can reduce burnout if you separate the two out. Um, but it's very difficult because the truth of it is, if your business fails, probably you've lost some of your time, some of your money, your employees lose their jobs, your investors lose their money, and that's just an incredible amount of pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet, that is your job, to be the first to realize when it is time. But what is the recipe of do not smash it all together? But what is the recipe of um, thinking like, okay, this is my startup, it's just a business, and this is my personality, it's not a personal fail. Do you have any recipe how to separate this? 
my my advice for this is usually, or the recipe for this is usually to not let yourself be isolated and to surround yourself with others going through a similar journey. Mm-hmm. Because when, and, and to be honest, them, you know, to have real conversations, not just about how great you're doing when mm-hmm. actually you might not be feeling that way, but to have friendships with other people in the industry that you can say, oh, and then they'll say, yes, it's happening to me too. And then you can start to see that there is a difference between you and your company and that it's a healthy separation to maintain. Thank you for sharing it. Uh, moving forward, once Scamlinks was acquired, reports indicate uh, that tech mergers and acquisitions fell by 9% in 2020, partly due to the lockdown. Uh, so yet, despite these challenges, some significant deals um, occurred, and Skimlinks being one of them. In fact, uh, TechCrunch reported that Skimlinks was acquired for approximately $75 million. So could you share with um, us how you managed to navigate this challenge, um, this challenge period, and successfully complete the acquisition, despite uh, different obstacles like lockdown? So it's important to note that I was um, no longer the CEO at that time. Um, I had stepped down from my uh, CEO um, two years before that. Mm-hmm. I was still um, president and I was still on the board, um, but I was no longer involved on a day-to-day basis with the company. Mm-hmm. So I, I obviously was involved in the acquisition from the perspective of board member and founder. Um, but it was my CEO that navigated getting a, uh, offers on the table and completing that sale. But, um, and it was, you know, it, it had not been our first time in a similar situation. Um, I had navigated, you know, any company will have many, uh, opportunities where people try to buy you. Uh, so it was not the first time I'd experienced, but it was certainly the one that we saw through to the end. Um, and it was, it was a crazy time. I mean, there's no way to describe it. You're suddenly getting offers to buy your company and, you know, experience a material, um, amount of wealth, but at the same time, inside your house and you're scared of what the future is going to be yeah. because there's nothing else like that. And I don't think any of us have ever experienced, nor will ever experience again, what that was like. Yeah. And so navigating a that process was just a whole other level of crazy. And we did the best we could with the, the information that we had. Um, we were both, a lot of us were scared that uh, it was not a good time to sell and also scared that it might be the only time we get to sell. So there was a lot of trying to just make the best decision that we could. It was a process that was easy to do remotely. That wasn't the problem. The problem was more navigating whether it was a good time to complete the sale or not. And I think that during the lockdown, um, this is the time where the flown idea has created, right? And it was, um, I just wanted to, to say a couple of words, the flown is designed for focused and deep work. I know that um, some maybe ideation process um, right now differs from what you have now. So what was the initial idea of Loan and how did you evolve uh, into the product that we see today? No, I'm a, I'm a really big believer in um, you don't really need to know what the product will be when you start. Mm-hmm. 
different. You know, I think that now we, where I've ended up is very, very different how it started. Uh-huh. But you begin with, um, begin with a problem. Uh, you begin with uh, an idea. Um, and you, as I said before, you have to approach it with um, low amounts of ego, you know, with a lot of humility. This is the best I can think. But really, it's only until you start, you're in it and you're selling it and you're building it and you're, you're promoting it that you really learn what works and what doesn't, what people like, what they don't like. And a good leader, a good person will listen, go, ha, huh, okay, tweak, let's tweak, ha, huh, listen, okay, tweak, ha, huh. oh, that's, that's interesting. But it's my vision is this, and I have conviction around that. So I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna follow that right now. And there's no recipe for this other than listening to as many people as you can, developing, as you said earlier, a gut instinct about the market, about the customer, about why they use it, and then seeing where you end up. Because oftentimes where you end up is a place that you could never have started from because you would never have understood the problem enough. To begin with that. And so you're right, I did those times. So Skiflinks began as a social shopping site like Pinterest <laughs> and became a B2B content monetization platform companies, which is, you know, totally different. And then now with Florian, it began as like an B for places you can work from and it's <laughs> become sort of a Twitch for work line focus platform. So in both cases, they're solving the same underlying problem, mm -hmm. but how they do it is a product that... Great, great. This is very insightful way. So you can um, just start with an, one idea and then it turns out that you are uh, developing something, not completely, but in some uh, ways different. And moving to my uh, favorite part and the last part of the podcast, um, Women in Tech, you as a founder and CEO, uh, can share some valuable insights, I think, uh, about this. Tech industry is often characterized by its notable gender gap. It's not secret that there are fewer women and men in the integral tech roles. Um, according to research, women take 25% um, of workers in the technology sector, and this is significantly worse at the executive level, uh, because women hold only 11% of the leadership roles. So from your point of view, what are some uh, of the biggest challenges that women face in tech industry today? So it's, a, it's an interesting question because I think you have to ask yourself if you believe that a 50-50 balance is both the goal and is it a, is in, is some sort of inherent discrimination the reason that it is not equal so is that shame i don't know if it is i that has not been my experience of it i think mm -hmm. that and again this is just my view but i do not believe that the reason that there are fewer women in leadership and in tech is symptomatic of any sort of significant sexism, uh, structural issues with the industry. My sense is that it is a more a, a more a result of choice um, mm. 
particularly around the rook um, that women want. And I see that for myself and amongst all my other feet. The truth of it is that it is very, very difficult to be a founder mm-hmm. with all the stress and the time that it comes with and also be a present mother or partner. Mm-hmm. It's possible and you may be able to have a situation where your partner is able and willing to take on more of the family responsibilities, or you might be financially secure enough that you can bring on full-time help. But many women, many couples don't want that and want at a certain stage in life. And is that race? Is sorry, is that sexism? Is that a structural issue, or is that just a um, consequence of biology? These are wonderful philosophical topics. But my sense is that. Um, there are very few things that are stopping women from senior positions uh, or any kind of position in tech other than their desire to do so. I'm curious, what, do, you, do you experience that? I, I mean, I'm, I, I love discussion with other women, but my, yeah, my experience is that any woman that wants it, having women in tech, they like having women in leadership positions, there are generally fewer that want it because of the cost on their life. Their, their opportunities for family and the stress. Like it's an extraordinary amount of stress and, and it's just not for everyone. So do you believe that um, men are more stress resistant than women? Uh, no, but I do think that more women uh, are worried about high levels of stress if they're trying to get pregnant or are pregnant. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that high levels Stress can make it difficult to conceive and that if you're pregnant, it can, it's very difficult. You don't want to be stressed. It makes the pregnancy experience difficult. Then when you're the mother newborn, if you've got breastfeeding uh, and you want to be part of it, you're out for a year or two. I would have loved to have found a partner that wanted to be a full-time carer of uh, of my children. Also, a lot of men don't want that. They to work as well and so if you want a family often uh that means someone's got to give and, and yes biologically and uh, so i don't think it's no i think that women can handle this amount of stress um it's just that uh if they also want family it can be hard to do both safely and healthily sometimes i've heard such thoughts that women are not technically inclined because men are better and some technical stuff so do you think this is a myth or have you ever experienced such point of view or uh, such approach in your business i think that there's a there's a definite cultural angle to this because i think if we saw little girls for example, that love doing crossword puzzles or logic puzzles. Uh-huh. Um, I said to them, ah, oh, you love doing logic puzzles. You're going to be an engineer or a coder. But we don't have, uh, we say that to little boys perhaps, but not to little girls. So I think that there is a cultural element to it where we don't encourage certain professions in women that exhibit interest in logic, um, in maths and so on. So that's, Something that I think has, we're doing a lot as a society, I think, now to Mm -hmm. rectify that, to really um, show that technical roles and jobs 
are really fun and fulfilling opportunities for people of all genders. Mm -hmm. Um, There's great women in STEM. There's just a lot more awareness of technical uh, professions as a really exciting and compelling career ambition for women and men. And so I think that that's, uh, that's been a really positive factor. Cultural elements that are not encouraged young girls that show technical abilities to go on a tech. I think a lot of the reason that there are um, historically been a lot more men in technical professions is it's just been a career that has been encouraged. So I think there's a very strong cultural element to it. And I'm very curious to see the last 10 years or so of really deliberate programs to encourage young girls to do tech or STEM related mm-hmm. professions has made it. Uh, when I was at university and did computer science, it was probably about 10% um, that were women. And I, I don't know actually, I'm curious what the numbers are now um, mm-hmm. as a result of it, because it could be more work that we are doing to encourage women into tech. Mm-hmm. And if they have not become more equal, maybe there is something else there. I doubt it's about proficiency, but it may be due to interest levels, but I don't, I don't know. And um, I think that from my perspective, also, I've noticed that key challenges um, women face include uh, bias on uh, biases on hiring and promotions as well. Have you ever experienced like this? I haven't. Um, And again, you have to also take everything I say with a grain of salt. When I talk to other women that in my industry, you know, I think I, it, it, I, I don't think so, but I think there are, there clearly are some biases that are there and, and perhaps there are certain industries that are more so than others. My experience of the tech industry particularly is that it's more um, welcoming of women than perhaps I'd say banking mm-hmm. um, or, you know, the, I think there are some other industries that have a lot more masculine energy in them my experience of tech is that it's generally quite a a delighted when there's women involved (laughs) i don't i I haven't experienced it myself i i imagine it's it must be but i think that there's been a lot of work to be done to make it a more inclusive space and i think it has definitely made a difference may not be exactly equal now but i don't know if either forcing equality is necessarily the goal. And uh, right now, I also think that sometimes some jobs are um, more natural for people, for women and some jobs, for example, like teacher, it's more natural maybe for us to have a teacher as a woman and uh, for some, uh, as you said, financial banking or something like this, something that is connected with a high level of dealing with the finances, I think that it's more natural for us to see um, on this level uh, men. You know, this is a a whole other philosophical discussion that we can have. Um, uh, You know, I I think that if we... um, assume that in all of us we have feminine and masculine energies and we have you know when i say feminine and the masculine by the feminine i mean the parts of all of us that are caring nurturing um you know softer more creative and then the masculine energies in all of us are the ones that are more driving more uh, analytical more uh, aggressive 
And, you know, I both have some masculine, some feminine energies. Men have the same as well. Generally, men have more masculine energies. Generally, women have more mm -hmm. feminine energies and professions that perhaps um, require more feminine energy and thus will attract more women. But again, this is a, a hotly discussed area. But that is that in, if you look around and you see it. When you go to a hospital, you do see that it is a majority of the carers, the nurses, women. When you go to a construction site, you see that the people that are exhibiting, you know, having to exert physical strength tend to be more masculine. Yeah. And then there are marks about things in the middle. So, you know, something like technical uh, uh, coding and uh, engineering and technical jobs, there are there is the need for both masculine and feminine energies in all of those professions. You know, you, you can't be a great developer mm -hmm. if you don't understand human design and yeah. quite, you know, human uh, requirements. Like the really great engineers are the ones that have a good feminine energy, mm -hmm. but you also need skill and energy to be able to do the logical deduction and the structuring of um, uh, of your code. So you need both. Mm -hmm. But I, it has uh, drawn people of more masculine energies to it. That being said, especially now, and I think especially with the rise now of AI, which will increasingly yeah. uh, automate engineering, there will be uh, a greater requirement for the softer, more feminine energies, the, you know, understanding what a human needs, and mm -hmm. uh, design it well, understanding how to talk about it and market it effectively. So perhaps we'll see a shift and we'll see, you know, uh, going into technical jobs because they're the ones that will be harder to replace with AI. I like your point of view. It's very interesting about the energies. I haven't heard about this and haven't heard about such point of view. So it's very interesting. Thank you. My last question. You say that the best role model uh, for female leaders is Buffy, the vampire, vampire slayer. And I just wanted to ask uh, just a fun um, question. What women in tech can learn from her? You know, I did actually do, I've done many a talk on this subject. I do actually think that. I th so for those who have not been lucky enough to watch all of Buffy the Vampire, it is not just a silly show about a teenage uh, blonde cheerleader who kills vampires. Actually mm -hmm. a metaphor. Uh, and I think it's a great metaphor for female leadership because she, you know, the, the whole concept of Buffy is that she is the first of all the slayers, which is, you know, this one uh, at any point in time, but she's the first of the slayers that um, delegated well and was able to have friends around her that she could lean on and work with. Mm -hmm. And as a result, was the greatest slayer of all time uh -huh. uh, because you had to be a great leader. She knew how to get people on, you know, committed to her cause. She was able to motivate. She was able to delegate. She knew she, she couldn't do it all on her own. And so she surrounded herself with people that um, mitigated her weaknesses and augmented her strengths. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think there's a in that for all leaders, but I think she particularly showed a uh, a brand or a, or a type of female leadership that I think is 
um, should be celebrated more. She never lost her femininity, um, but she was a very strong. And I think that it's really inspiring to see examples of how you can mix those two together. And right now uh, we have just a quick flash questions game. I will ask um, a question with two options and you will need to choose uh, the one that is the closest to you. So Sydney or London? London. London because it's where I've lived the majority of my adult life. Okay, great. Um, 2007 or 2020? 2020. Uh, it's <laughs> old. Why? We haven't, had, we haven't experienced the lockdown yet in 2007. Yeah. But 2020 was a, was, uh, it was a good year for me personally. Yeah. Uh, okay. I see. Okay. So working or teaching? Ooh, uh, working. Working. So me. Okay. Pre-planned or on the spot? <laughs> on the spot for me. <laughs> one more dog or one more startup? <laughs> one more dog. <laughs> it's not so stressful, right? Exactly. No, I, I think this is, a, this is my last one. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So, Alicia, we are down with the podcast right now. We have covered all the questions. Unfortunately, we do some... Um, obstacles but we have already them covered and everything is okay so we have uh, eventually this session and we have recorded the podcast thank you so much for your time i appreciate i know that you're extremely busy but uh, i appreciate your readiness uh, to jump on a podcast and share your experience thank you so much oh thank you this is one of the most well researched and uh well constructed interviews so thank you so much for being the recipient of your great questions thanks for joining and thanks for watching our episode on building digital products please make sure that you are subscribed and uh, turn the thumbs up